0: Now, is it me, or has politics, if not a world, gone completely nuts? Governor Ron DeSantis from Florida has declared war on Donald Trump. Boris Johnson has threatened to sue the British government. The tyrannical maniac Putin continues to terrorise Ukraine. Well, Noam Chomsky, or the father of modern linguistics, as many call him, is, in my view, one of the great minds of our generation. He's a linguist, a philosopher, a fiercely outspoken political activist, authored over 150 books looking at the crumbling fabric of society, and I'm delighted to say that Noam Chomsky joins me now from his home in Massachusetts. Mr Chomsky, what a pleasure to have you on the programme. Pleasure to be with you. I wanted to start by asking you, there's a a famous doomsday clock based on what a lot of experts perceive to be the moment the world basically ends. That clock is now heading towards the dreaded midnight uh, at a fast rate. We're nearer to doomsday, according to experts, than we've ever been. Do you think, I mean, you're 94 years old, you've had an extraordinary life, you've seen lots of things, not least world wars, Um, what do you think about the state of the world right now and are we right to be perhaps concerned that doomsday is on its way?
1: Well, the doomsday clock was set in 1947, shortly after the bombings of... Hiroshima Nagasaki. At that point, it was seven minutes to midnight. A couple of years later, in 1952, moved to two minutes to midnight when the United States and Russia exploded thermonuclear weapons, showing that human intelligence had advanced, if that's the right word, uh, to the point where it could destroy everything. Oscillated since. In the Trump years, it moved back to two minutes. Later, the analysts' abandoned minutes altogether moved to seconds. It's now set at 90 seconds to midnight for good reasons. Set in January, I presume it'll move still forward towards midnight. We're now facing questions that have never arisen in human history. They will have to be answered soon, or else we're essentially finished. Uh, One, of course, is the threat of nuclear war, which is growing both in Europe and in Asia. The other is the inexorable march towards climate destruction. We have a couple of decades in which to deal with it. Methods are pretty well known Uh, if we don't pursue them. We will pass irreversible tipping points and there will be a steady decline to undescribable catastrophe. That's where we stand now.
0: I mean, I would add a third to that potentially, purely based on what Professor Stephen Hawking told me in what turned out to be his last television interview, which when I asked him what was the biggest threat to mankind, he said when artificial intelligence, learns to self-design, then that's it. Um, There are some experts out there in the world of AI who believe we may be approaching uh, that eventuality. What's your view of, of AI and that threat?
1: I think that's mostly science fiction. I mean, in principle, it is possible to reach what's called singularity, to reach a point where AI might move on independently, but this is such a remote contingency that I really don't see any. It doesn't seem to me worth considering very seriously, especially when we think of the imminent catastrophes that are quite real.
0: On the the catastrophes that you outlined, taking the first one of nuclear war, how close do you think we're getting to that potentially happening with this war in Ukraine? In other words, if Ukraine with its offensive was to push Vladimir Putin back, if it looked like back home in Russia, he may be losing the war or is even driven out altogether, do you think he's potentially the kind of person who might actually use a nuclear weapon to seize back initiative?
1: Well, that's, it's conceivable. Uh, Tactical nuclear weapons have apparently been placed in Belarus. Uh, The West is taking a ghastly gamble. They're assuming that uh, if Russia faces defeat, which does not look too imminent, but if they do, that Vladimir Putin uh, will pack his bags. slink away silently to oblivion or worse, and will not use the weapons that everyone knows he has to escalate the war up to the point of uh, attacking NATO supply lines in western Ukraine, in which case there's growing confrontation with NATO. Uh, Once you step on the escalation ladder, it's very hard to stop. So it's possible. There's also a serious possibility of nuclear war in Asia. In fact, US top military officials, generals, have predicted that uh, within a couple of years we'll be in a war with China. should be understood that a war between nuclear powers is inconceivable. It means termination. If a country, major nuclear power, carries out a first strike, it itself is likely to be destroyed, even if there's no retaliation, if only from the effects of nuclear winter. These are not conceivable possibilities, but top strategists are talking about them and planning for them. In fact, U.S. official policy, strategic policy, since 2018 has been to be prepared to fight two nuclear wars with China, two wars, but of course they become nuclear wars with China and Russia. This is beyond
0: insanity. But what do you do if you have a dictator like Vladimir Putin who thinks it's completely acceptable to illegally invade a sovereign democratic country, in an an effort to restore the Soviet Union to its czar like glory days, as he would put it, or if you're President Xi and you've made it pretty clear you want Taiwan back where it belongs as you see it, uh, and you decide to do the same with Taiwan, what does the rest of the world do? I mean, do we not have a moral duty to stand up to that kind of thing? The first thing we
1: do is try to be clear about the facts. Vladimir Putin said that it was a disaster for the Soviet Union to be destroyed. But he added, anyone who thinks it can be restored is out of his mind. That part of the quotation is not given in the West. With regard to Asia, there has been for 50 years a an agreement between the United States and China it's called the One China Policy. It was established in the 1970s, firmly, explicitly, unambiguously, said that, China, that Taiwan is part of China, but neither side will undertake provocative actions to change this situation. It's called strategic ambiguity. It's held the peace for 50 years, is not inconsiderable in international affairs. China is still maintaining that position. The United States is abandoning it. The United States is now accusing China of calling for a one China policy, which in fact is true, they do. And that's the official policy of the United States for the past 50 years now being abandoned uh, with quite provocative actions and plans for further escalation. I can read you the, if you look at the official doctrine, it's, it's not secret, uh, the, United, the official doctrine is to encircle China with a ring of sentinel states, uh, US allies, uh, South Korea, Japan, Australia, Guam, m- arm them with uh, advanced precision weapons aimed at China, uh, provided, of course, by the United States. United you know, States is now escalating that by sending B-52s, that's nuclear-capable B-52s, with cruise missiles to permanent stationing for the first time in Guam, US military outpost, northern Australia, uh, flying time to China. Meanwhile, the U.S. is quite openly, publicly, calling for a commercial war to pre- prevent China from develop- developing. Official statement is, we have to prevent China's innovation and development. Uh, other provocative acts are being taken, uh, advance increasing diplomatic relations, contrary to the agreement in the one-China policy in the 1970s, as I mentioned...
0: But but let me ask you, let me ask you, I mean, if China, notwithstanding everything you've just said, if China did invade Taiwan, what would be the morally correct response of the West, and in particular, America?
1: The morally correct stance is to prevent it from happening. There is no indication that China is planning to invade Taiwan. If the United States increases the escalation, they might do it. Uh, In that case, the bars are down. You can't say if you move on to war with China, we're basically all finished. But there's really no point considering a remote contingency when there are actual events taking place, like the U.S. escalation of the confrontation with China. China's not saintly by any means, nothing like it. But if you look at the facts, it's U.S. escalation. The U.S. has now enlisted, trying to enlist Europe in its confrontation with China by expanding NATO. U.S. has expanded NATO to the Indo-Pacific region, turning it into an international military system under U.S. control. Uh, all of this is going on. We can, if we like, talk about the possible contingency of a taiwan of China invading Taiwan for which there is no indication though it could happen if we continue the provocation. Remember the provocation is serious. It's both in the military dimension and in the commercial dimension, quite openly. What I've been referring to is public policy, very open, and it is increasing the threat. You put nuclear-capable B-52s in flying distance to China with nuclear-tipped cruise missiles, that's provocation. Well,
0: I mean, they would argue, of course, that it's defensive, that they're actually... These are protective measures. They're not provocative measures. They would argue that China's march to... Economic imperialism and their massive expansion of their military represents an existential threat if they misuse those powers. That's what they would argue. And therefore, no. what they're doing is protecting Again, themselves and other countries from, from nefarious behaviour by China.
1: I would suggest distinguishing between Western propaganda and the facts. So let's take China's military build-up. This is reported regularly by SIPRI, Swedish Peace Research Institute. You can pick it up on the internet. You will find that China's military expenditures for the past 10 years, per capita military expenditures, are a flat, straight line. They have not increased. Of course, the uh, China has increased its uh, military as the population increases, but it's way below U.S. military expenditure, and the U.S. is far above in technological advances. So, yes, and uh, China, remember, is faced with security problems at every border. The United States is faced with no security problems, but U.S. Military expenditures dwarf—they're about the same as the next ten countries altogether. It's a per capita far beyond China. So yes, uh, there is. And what, when we talk about this uh, economic imperialism, exactly what are we referring to? We're referring to investment and development programs throughout Eurasia, spanning to Africa expanding even to Latin America. The US is trying to stop them, has found no way to do it, except by escalating in the military and economic dimensions by trying openly, publicly to try to prevent China's economic development.
0: If you don't mind me, uh, at the risk of sounding impertinent, but you sound very trusting of China and its motivations...
1: No, not in the least. I said explicitly, China is by no means saintly. Plenty of criticisms you can make of China. But I would like to describe the world situation as it is, not as it's presented by US-British propaganda.
0: Okay, let's move to another issue I think we have more common ground on. Free speech, it seems to me, has never been under more ferocious attack in the West than it is... Right now, why is that and what do we do about it?
1: There definitely is an attack on freedom of speech, even freedom to read. In the United States, uh, Ron DeSantis is running for president, as he just announced, has imposed regulations, laws in Florida, which make it illegal to teach uh, authentic American history. You have to teach a kind of history which glorifies the United States. Nothing about what actually happened. Uh, This is happening in Republican legislatures around the country. The libraries are being forced to throw out books. There's uh, laws passed to say there are topics you're not allowed to talk about.
0: Well, he would argue... I mean, DeSantis would argue... I've interviewed him. He would argue that he is focused on things like critical race theory, which he feels is inappropriate for teaching young children. He thinks that gender ideology should not be taught to young children. And it has a lot of support. A lot of Floridians uh, agree with him about this.
1: Critical race theory. What is critical race theory? Does anybody know? Critical race theory is a slogan invented by the right wing and the person who invented it, Christopher Rufo, has been very open and frank. He says, we just use this as a way to refer to everything we hate. If you want to know what critical race theory actually is, it's a small academic discipline, which suggests, which investigates systematic elements of racism, racism in American education. So they certainly exist. It's never reached the schools. Schools wouldn't even know what it is. This is invented by the right wing, exactly as Rufo stated, to refer to everything we want, we hate and want to destroy, like teaching American history, like uh, uh, teaching uh, gender issues. We hate that, so we'll call it critical race theory. But it's a small academic Discipline, which no-one ever heard of until it was picked up primarily by Rufo then expanded through the Republican uh, echo chamber to be some major attack on... Well, listen, on, listen, uh, I don't...
0: I, I don't disagree that the right obviously have a lot of issues, that on the far-right in particular. We've seen a rise of white supremacy in America, a rise of far-right uh, domestic terrorism and so on. That's completely inarguable. But also we've seen a rise of what I would call a very strange uh, version of liberalism, this very ultra-woke so-called liberalism, which I would liken more to fascism, albeit without the extreme violence, but the mindset of wanting to control how people think, wanting to cancel people for having different opinions, deplatforming speakers you don't like at university, and so on, which to me is the antithesis of what liberalism was supposed to be. What do you think of that phenomenon?
1: I've been, as you know, probably very much opposed to the actions of small sectors of young people who are picking up the traditional cancellation, which has been endemic in the academic world and in the uh, political world for years. I can give you examples from my own experience cancellation of the left has been constant. It's only very, you want me to spend time, I could tell you from my own experience, which is small of it. Now, small segments of young people are picking up that same improper uh, policy and should be opposed. We should oppose it just as we should have opposed the massive cancellation that has been accepted for decades because it was directed against the left and dissident opinion. So, yes, it's wrong.
0: Let me ask you... uh, No, I mean, you're... Like I said, you're 94 years old. Is there any great burning question in life that you... I find it hard to believe you haven't found the answer to everything, given how massive your brain is, but is there anything left that you're really, you would love to know the answer to that you've never, to your satisfaction, worked out?
1: Well, moving to another domain of intellectual professional pursuits, there is a question that was asked by Galileo, then by his associates in the 17th century. Which is as yet unanswered. How are you and I able to do what we are now doing? How, as Galileo put it, how is it possible with a finite number of symbols to produce an infinite number of thoughts and even use these symbols to allow others? who have no access to our minds, to uh, access to their inner workings of our minds. How is this miracle possible? Was raised by Galileo, studied the major concern for Descartes, uh, other leading figures in the 17th century, began working on it. Uh, We now understand some aspects But the major questions are not only unanswered, but we don't even know how to approach an answer. So that's a leading, one of many leading problems. And what has been been the,
0: when you look back at your life, what has been the greatest moment of your life?
1: I can't say, a lot of great
0: moments. If I had the power to let you relive one moment in your life, what would you go for?
1: Some moments are almost miraculous, like the birth of my first child, say, uh, many other things like it. But I don't see much point talking about my personal life and situation. There are more important things in the world.
0: Do you feel the world is a is a better place than when you were born or a worse place?
1: Well, I was born in 1928, right before the Great Depression, which of course was far more severe than anything we've suffered recently. Uh, fascism, as I was growing up as a young child, fascism was spreading through Europe. It looked unstoppable. Actually, the first article I remember writing for a school newspaper began with the fall of Austria, Czechoslovakia, Barcelona was right after the fall of Barcelona with Franco, when it seemed as if the fascist plague was unstoppable. Uh, those were very dark moments. Uh, it uh, Another extremely dark moment was August 6, 1945. When I was then 16 years old, old enough to understand, it was clear that humans had were moving towards the capacity to destroy everything that came a few years later. Uh, has the world changed for the better? In many ways. Take the United States, country I know best, go back to the 1960s, the 1960s. The United States had anti-miscegenation laws that were so extreme that the Nazis refused to accept them. In the United 1960s, the United States did have federally subsidized housing, but it was segregated, not for blacks. That meant a black man could maybe get a job in an auto plant during the boom period of the 50s but he couldn't use it to acquire wealth. Wealth in the United States mainly means property, enormous legacy of hundreds of years of uh, slavery and horrors. Uh, Women's rights were not accepted. In fact, in the 1960s, in principle, the United States still accepted British common law, which the founding fathers had explicitly accepted. And according to that law, Blackstone, women were not persons, they were property. The property of the father handed over to the husband. Well, that was eroded over the years, but it literally wasn't until 1975 that the Supreme Court formally determined that women are persons, they're peers. They have a right to appear in federal trial. Well, all of these things have changed those are all steps forward. It's now called wokeness, but it's uh, steps forward towards a more caring, egalitarian, just society. Sometimes goes overboard, but on the whole, it's been a very positive development.
0: When you, again, look at your life in its totality, what do you think your greatest achievement has been?
1: That's for other people to determine you want to know what I think? It'll be something you never heard of. Try me. Yeah. For 25 years, I was spending a great deal of effort in the United States, in Britain, to try to stop the worst atrocity of the post war period the US British backed Indonesian invasion of East Timor, mm. which wiped out about a third of the population. Uh, could have been stopped instantly at any point. It was necessary to try to engage large masses of the population to compel, finally, 1999 did compel uh, Bill Clinton to, to call it off. Something was saved. It seemed impossible. How could a small island of a couple hundred thousand people resist an invasion by a major country supported by the greatest military powers in the world. But it finally succeeded.
0: And your your support for that is, in your estimation, your greatest achievement?
1: In the area of social and political policy, one. There are others I was very active in from the early 1960s when... John F. Kennedy radically escalated the war in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. From that point, I devoted enormous effort uh, to opposition, to direct resistance, faced imprisonment, finally enough opposition to develop to prevent Richard Nixon from moving on to nuclear weapons, as seemed likely. So that's an achievement.
0: Who who has been for you the best American president of your lifetime, and who's been the worst? In my lifetime,
1: FDR, Franklin Delano
0: Roosevelt. And the worst?
1: Too much competition, I'm afraid.
0: (laughs) I know you're you're not a massive fan of Donald Trump. How do you feel about him running again?
1: No. If he runs again, it'll be a disaster for the world. For many reasons, for one thing, Trump, as you saw during his first time, is dedicated. Actually, his he has two commitments. One commitment is to himself; he's a paranoid, he's a, a megalomaniac a psychopath. All that concerns him is me. The other commitment is to serve corporate power and great wealth abjectly his one legislative achievement was a huge gift to tax gift to the ultra wealth ultra rich and the corporate sector and nothing else but he is a major climate denialist he denies that global warming is taking place he wants to maximize the use of fossil fuels including the most dangerous of them Uh, and to eliminate regulations which might mitigate the catastrophe. That's a death sentence for the human species. Domestically, he's made it very clear that he wants to institute what we would properly call a proto-fascist state, eliminate the civil service since the mid-19th century like every other Democratic society, the United States has been a has had a nonpartisan civil service which does most of the administration which keeps the society running. Britain has the same others have the same. Trump has made it explicit that he wants to eliminate it, replace it by loyalists who put put in power that undercuts what remains a functioning democracy. We can go on. It would be a colossal disaster, and it's not unlikely. You look at polls...
0: Yeah. No, I mean, he's he's, he's way ahead in the Republican nomination polls. What do you make of, of, over here in the UK, Brexit, which is now eight years, pretty much, since we voted to leave the European Union, or well, seven years, um, and there's no sign of any, of any benefit from leaving the EU? What, do you think that was a... A sensible decision by britain to do that
1: i thought at the time that it was a very serious error uh, both harmful to britain harmful to europe uh, in a way beneficial to the united states because under brexit britain becomes even more subject to u.s domination than it was before Uh, but i thought it was a terrible mistake and I think the record since basically confirms that.
0: Do you think we should have a second referendum? Most of the polls suggest if we did, there would be overwhelming support now to go back into the European Union. Buyer's remorse.
1: Yes, I'm not surprised. In fact, that was the case almost immediately. If you look back... I mean, you know better than I do, but if you look back at the polls shortly after brexit they did indicate a substantial uh, desire on the part of the population to rescind it that was a healthy position in my opinion
0: who's been the the single greatest public figure of your lifetime in the world any anyone of any kind
1: there are many one of them This is a tragic example. He's a very close personal friend for 50 years now. Facing terminal cancer, been moved to hospice, Dan Ellsberg. I think what he did was magnificent.
0: One of the great... Well, I suppose, how would you describe him, for those who don't know his story?
1: Well, people should know his story. Dan was working at the top level of US uh, uh, intelligence, had one of the highest... uh, It was very much at the centre of strategic planning and uh, uh, analysis... uh, He decided that there was a a secret uh, history. Robert McNamara, Secretary of Defense, had commissioned a secret history of the Vietnam War. Dan, at the very top level, knew about it. Uh, He and his friend, Tony Russo, both working at the Rand Corporation at the high, you can't call it top secret, it's way above that didn't even have a classification, Uh, they decided that the American population should know what had been done in the worst crime since the Second World War. Shouldn't be kept secret. So they copied it, released it, tried to get the press to cover it. Finally, actually, Dan, he did give me a copy of it, so I was able to write about it as soon as it became public. uh, Bits and pieces of it were leaked in the press. The Nixon administration tried to block it. Supreme Court overruled them, so it did finally appear. Uh, Then he went on for the rest of his life to try to bring to the population understanding and knowledge of the high-level nuclear policies, which are so shocking that it's almost impossible to talk about them. So nuclear policies going back to the early 1960s call for obliteration of China if there is a confrontation in Berlin. Nothing to do with China, but you got to use all the forces you have. Those are the PSYOPs, the actual proposals. Dan tried very hard not with too much success, unfortunately, to try to bring the American population and the world to understand the hideous, horrendous threats of terminal nuclear war that are right on the verge. And if you look over the history of the nuclear system, it's kind of a miracle that we've survived. There have been case after case which came very close, very close, much too close to moving on to terminal destruction.
0: Well, if if you had, if we knew this was gonna be our last day on Earth, I asked Professor Hawking this actually. I said, how would you spend it? And he said he would get his family together. He would play Wagner very loudly and he would drink fine champagne. If you knew it was all about to end, how would you spend your last day?
1: I would get my family together, but skip the rest. (laughs)
0: Finally, Noam Chomsky, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure to talk to you. So fascinating, I could talk to you for hours. Um, What would you like your legacy to be? If you could write your own heading on your own tombstone, here lies Noam Chomsky, he... What would you like the rest of that sentence to say? He tried his best. I think that's, that's absolutely correct. And your best was extremely good and is extremely good. Tom Cholsky, thank you very much indeed for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you very much.